0: Thank you for this evening and the chance to gather and to walk through um, the scripture, to walk through the book of Romans. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that assemble week after week um, with eager hearts, uh, ready to learn what you would say from uh, this incredible book. So guide us now, guide me, help me to say only those things that are true and helpful and beneficial in all of us as we study in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so look at uh, Romans 9. And I would love it if somebody's willing to read 1 through 18 um, as we uh, resume tonight. I'll make some introductory comments and we'll, we'll dig in, especially on verses 17 and 18, which are our focus tonight. Who would like to read? You can read on the, on the handout if you'd like or just from your Bible. Romans 9, 1 through 18. I can read it. Okay, thanks.
1: Uh, 1 through 18, let's say?
0: Please. I
1: speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons, Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, Forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, With Esau, I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden.
0: All right. Thank you very much. So um, just by way of review, um, the book of Romans is given uh, Romans one 16 to uh, understand the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then through eight chapters, Paul has been unfolding the doctrine of the gospel. And it's a marvelous, uh, powerful, deep, rich doctrinal study that comes uh, at the end in Romans 8 with a crescendo of praise, saying that there's nothing in all creation, nothing nothing in the entire universe that could ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, But then Paul has to address, as he does throughout the epistle, Uh, certain objections that can be raised against the doctrine he does this regularly and one of the prime objections that can be raised in all of biblical history against what Paul is saying here is the case of the Jewish nation the case of what about the Jews and uh, it's such a, a powerful and deep and rich topic that Paul has to take three chapters to answer it it's not an easy answer that he gives here Um, And uh, it actually even touches to some degree on the way that I presented the abomination of desolation on Sunday. Because I think it's a story that still isn't complete yet. I think there's still more to tell as Romans 11 makes plain. We're not going to get there uh, tonight. But uh, Paul begins uh, by talking about this topic. He's raising the question, why is... and, And it's never clearly articulated. But that he's talking about the Jewish nation, his brothers those of his own nation, etc., The Jewish people is pretty obvious uh, from um, verse three, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So those are the Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham. That's the problem. What is the problem? Well, given the centrality of Christ crucified and resurrected, the need for faith in him, justification by faith in Christ alone for the full forgiveness of sins, Given all of that, why is it that God's chosen people, the Jews, are almost overwhelmingly rejecting Jesus Christ as their savior? So he's having to address that. And that's the topic that he addresses for these three chapters. The first thing that he wants to take off the table uh, right away in verse 6 is it is possible that God's word has failed concerning the Jews. He's saying that's impossible. That is not why this is happening. So... He's defending the, the f- efficacy of the word of God, the, uh, the power of the word of God. Uh, there's lots of indications of this. If you know what to look for in the first eight chapters of Romans, but probably my favorite is uh, in Romans four, it talks about how Abraham's body was as good as dead. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Uh, the, this dead deadness issue in terms of procreation there. But there it says, uh, the God uh, who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. All right, that's a powerful statement of the word of God. When God calls, let there be light, there's light. When God says, let there be life, there's life. When God calls to a corpse like Lazarus, Lazarus come forth, he comes alive and comes out. That's the power of the word of God. And we're counting on that, aren't we, for our salvation? We're trusting in that. We're trusting in God's God's word to raise us from the dead when we're in the grave. And we need to know that God's word cannot fail. And so he's saying, look, that's not the reason why here. That's not why the Jews are not believing in Jesus, because God's word has failed. Now, we should have known that. Uh, uh, the book of Isaiah makes it very plain. Isaiah 55, God's word cannot return empty. It achieves that for which it was sent always. That's the word of God. And then again, in Isaiah 66 and verse two, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. We should tremble at the word of God. We should tremble at its power, at its creativity, at its beauty, its perfection. That's how powerful the word of God is. And even in the very section that we're studying tonight, um, Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, dot, dot, dot. It's a very fascinating statement. I talked about it last time when we assembled. Uh, The most natural thing that we would expect there would be what? Not scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. What's the most natural thing we would expect in verse 17? Instead of scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. God says to Pharaoh. Is that a mistake on Paul's part? There are no mistakes. In in Paul's mind, he's equating Scripture with God. Now, again, we know the Bible's the Bible. This is a book. I understand that. There are different translations and all that. We're not worshiping a book. It's not that. But it's that the Word of God is our way of encountering God. That's how we know who God is. We are encountering God by His Word. And so that's why he interchanges Scripture and god there even though we know historically scripture didn't even exist at that point when moses was having his encounters with pharaoh he hadn't written the bible yet moses hadn't all right but it was going to get written someday and that's how and by the time the romans were reading this by the time we're reading it scripture did exist and that's that esteem we should have and by the way i think that's just a demeanor we have toward the bible on this topic, this difficult topic of the sovereignty of God and salvation, predestination, reprobation, are we going to submit to what the Bible says or not? Are we going to be under the scripture or are we going to seek to be over the scripture? That's that's a very important stance we have to come to. Are we going to just humbly accept what the scripture says, though we may not understand it all, or are we going to try to stand over the scripture and say, I don't agree with it, It doesn't make sense to me? So at any rate, he's wanting to take that right off the table in verse 6. It's not that. It's not as though God's word has failed. Then he goes into the issue of election. There is an Israel within the Israel. There's a larger group of Israel, like a bounded set, Israel, and then a smaller set within the true Israel within the larger biological descendants of Abraham. Not all who are Israel are Israel. Not all Jews are really Jews. He had openly said that earlier, and we're going to walk through this, but, but he, he, he says it again. He says, not all um, who are descended from Israel are Israel. And then he says in verse 8, it's not the natural children who are God's children. Genealogy isn't going to save you. Biology doesn't save you. John 1 says that children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We are born by the power of God. That's how you get saved. So your genealogy is not going to help or hinder you. You could be a Parthian or a Mede or an Elamite or whatever. It doesn't matter. You could be a Jew. That doesn't mean you won't be saved. That biology, genealogy, doesn't save you. It's not enough to be born. You have to be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. You have to be born by the power of the Spirit. So it's not the natural children who are God's children. The children born by procreation. It's a supernatural birth by the spirit that saves your soul. That's what he's saying. As. So just because they're Jews, just because they're physically descendant, doesn't mean they're okay. And uh, so he says, in other words, not the natural children who are God's children, but the children of the promise, children of the promise, the supernatural ones. Uh, that's, uh, those are the ones who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then he brings in two examples, Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. These are the two case studies of the same thing. The genealogy doesn't help you, biology doesn't help you. Having Abraham as your father didn't help, it didn't help Ishmael. He wasn't a child of the promise. Having Isaac and Rebekah as your father and mother didn't help Esau. All right? They had the same father and mother. But in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now that seems to be God's whole agenda here. That seems to be his whole purpose. When the elect get to heaven and they are radiant and glorious and shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, when they are glorified and all that, they will know that it was not by works, but by him who calls. Why is that important, by the way? I mean, when all said and done, when we are completely conformed to Christ and we spend eternity in the presence of God, we will know that it was not by works, but by him who calls. Why is that important? Seems to be important to God. <laughs> Why is that important that, that we will know perfectly and accurately that we're there not by works but by Him who calls? He'll got all the glory? That seems to be important to God. Do you, do you guys, do you guys sense, that, sense that? That our salvation, that God will get the glory for our salvation, that seems to be important to God. Um, can someone read um, Romans 11, 33 through 36? Very beautiful. Statement of this. I don't I think there may be no more beautiful one in all the Bible. Actually, I would like you, Wes, to read it because I love hearing you read scripture, brother. And uh, since you're paid to do ministry here, I don't think you'd be ashamed to read scripture publicly, not having been warned at all. So yeah, yeah, Romans 11, 33 through 36.
1: Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, for who has been his counsel? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever
0: amen so what's the last thing he says in that doxology him be glory. that's the point to him be the glory forever amen and we are going to be so into that when we're in heaven we're going to be shining with god's glory when we're in heaven not our own It'll be God's glory, and we'll know it. We'll be shining because God made us glorious. We're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, and it's because our Father's glorious that we're going to shine. And and so God wants us to be saved in such a way that he gets all the glory. And the more we know that now, the better. It humbles us, doesn't it? It makes us humble. And so, by the way, and I've said before, the reason we walk through this, the reason we go through these hard doctrines, the reason we do all this work is so that we will ourselves be humbled by it and we will also be secure in it. That we will know that God has put his hand of grace on us and he'll never let us go until we are at last glorious in heaven. He wants us to know that. And so those two character states of genuine deep humility and a complete confidence or, or assurance or security, those are good things for us to have. And this doctrine does it. It does that for us. It humbles us and it gives us security. And that's what... So he's walking through this. He says, all right, it's not enough to be a Jew biologically. That's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't frankly, hinder you. It helps you a little. He, he goes through how it helps him. He goes through the list here like he did in Romans 3. There are certain benefits to being a Jew. It is beneficial, but it doesn't save you. All right, those benefits aren't, aren't salvific. They're, they're helpful, but they don't save you, all right? And it's a terribly sad topic. It's, it's the saddest topic in Paul's life, frankly. I mean, how much effort did he put into saving his countrymen? I mean, this was a big theme for him. Every city, every town, he went to the synagogue first and tried to reason with the Jews from Scripture. He wanted them to be saved. And he had a brokenness and a sorrow and a sadness in him. And it's just a small reflection of that which was in Jesus' heart when he wept over Jerusalem. Frankly, in my opinion, the sorrow of a sovereign God who can save anyone anytime is one of the great mysteries of theology. Our God is in heaven. He does what pleases him, and yet he's not pleased. He's sorrowful. It's a mystery. I don't think we'll ever solve it. You know, we could say, well, then God, make yourself happy. Save everyone. But that would be universalism, and that's not biblical. He's not choosing to do that. At any rate, there's a sorrow here, and and I think it's it's instructive for us. All right, so fundamentally... Then we have this uh, election, the doctrine of election, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. All right? And so we walk through that. Now we get to 14 through uh, through 18, which is where we were last time. What then shall we say is God unjust? This is the kind of, again, this is the beauty of how Paul argues here. He's going to, he says, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking right now this is unjust. I know it. I know this is what you're thinking. But it's not true. Is is God unjust? Not at all. I mean, that's a, a yet another massive understatement by, God, by, by Paul. Not at all. God's credentials on justice are impeccable. God is a God of justice, a perfect commitment to justice. But at any rate, no, he's not unjust. And then he says to Moses, now in this section here, in this paragraph, we have, just like we did before uh, with Jacob and Esau or Isaac and Ishmael, We have two witnesses brought forward in the court trial of doctrine here. Now, these two witnesses are Moses and Pharaoh, and they represent similar to Jacob and Esau. Moses represents the Jacob elect strain, and Pharaoh represents the Esau reprobate strain. All right? But we learn things about God and his purposes from each one of them. Moses receives mercy, a specific kind of mercy. Pharaoh is hardened. So the summation in verse 18 is God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And one of the, one of the strongest, maybe even hardest to accept conclusions we can come to is that this is the twofold program for God for the entire human race. Every single human being gets one or the other from God. Verse 18. I think it's true. Maybe something that will take you a while to get to that point where you realize there's not a third category. God's not doing some third thing here other than having mercy or hardening. He isn't. He's either having mercy on you to the end of your final salvation, or he's hardening you to the end of your final damnation. These are the two things that are going on in in space and time. Now, I'm not saying we can identify the negative in space and time. We will in heaven because it will be a done deal. We will know who's in heaven and who's in hell. But now we cannot know who is being hardened. We just can know from verse 18 that there are people being hardened right now. And God is doing that. And God's not making any mistakes. It's not unjust or whatever. It's going on. So, this is all just by way of overview, but this is what's happening in the world, all right? God is either showing mercy to people or he's hardening them, and that's the conclusion. And that's his answer to the problem of why is it the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus as their savior? It's because God is having mercy on some and he's hardening the rest. That's the answer. And he's going to come back to that again in chapter 11. That is his answer. All right, so that's uh, uh, just an overview. Let's walk through it. Any questions as we, before we go in detail? Okay, so Moses is the example of mercy. And what is the specific aspect of mercy that God gives him? Well, what does he say? All right, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Um, what is he talking about? Well, it was that encounter that Moses had with God on the mountain, on the, whole, on the sacred mountain, in which, at some point, Moses was moved to ask God to give him, Moses, the greatest gift that God could give to any human being. None greater. What did he ask for on that mountain? What did he want from God? To see his face. Yes, show me your glory. That's what he asked for. I want to see your glory, your face. Face being, again, face. The face of God is an anthropomorphism, but face communicates God's intentions. You know, like the face. You know, what tells you more about your spouse, about how he or she is feeling about you, uh, their elbow or their face? You know, <laughs> pretty obvious. All right. You think about the. We talked about this at staff meeting the other day. Father, of the prodigal son. Prodigal son comes back from his vacation if you want to call it that and he sees his father running toward him how important is his father's face at that moment it's everything the father had every right to be enraged at that son but what did he see in the face love welcome that meant everything all right so let's go back to the mountain he asked to see God's glory I'm telling you there is no greater thing that God could ever give to any sinner than a display of himself As a matter of fact, I think it's why God created the universe. God created the universe out of overflowing generosity. He created everything, including the sparrows and the wildflowers and the tiny things and the big things and all of that, all of them as a display of God's glory. And then he created angels and humans with an ability to understand it and appreciate it because he's generous, not because he's needy. He already knew how great he was. He didn't need to make anything to know how great he was. All right? But he did it for us. And so he makes this beautiful universe with the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the earth, and all of the flora and fauna, and all the beauty and all that, so that we can know him. All right? But sin entered in and corrupted us and made us into idolaters so that we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, all that. And Moses was included in that. Moses was an idolater too. Moses was a sinner. He wasn't some pure, perfect person. He was a sinner, all of us. And here's this sinner up on the holy mountain, The only one allowed to be up there. Anyone else would be shot with an arrow or struck dead, but directly by God. But Moses was allowed to go up into the glory cloud, right? And then emboldened by that, he asked for even more. Now show me your glory. What was God's answer to him? This is God's answer to him, among other things. Now he did say, no one can see my face and live. I can't show you all my glory because, and this goes into 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't handle it. They're like a circuit breaker issue, way too much amperage. You're going to get fried, all right? But I will show you a little. i put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you over, and you'll be able to see the trailing portions of my glory. But he doesn't get in any of that in Romans 9. He just says, all right, you want to see my glory? That's an act of mercy on my part. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, what does that statement even mean? I mean, just simply, what does it mean, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy? his choice is his choice absolutely to do what to have mercy on me or not right and the the mercy that is specifically happening on the mountain is what it's not not going to hell it's something very positive right what is the mercy that was given to moses on the mountain to see the glory of god and the consummation of that is heaven is it not isn't that what heaven is to see the glory of God in the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, and in the face of God and in each other and all that, that's what it is. So ultimately it's heaven, it's true. It's heaven and not hell, but it's primarily God, self-disclosure. And so what you're saying is God gives it to whom he chooses. You can't demand it. It's not a matter of justice. Remember Is God unjust? You're saying it's unjust for God not to show himself or disclose himself to you as a sinner? That's not a matter of justice. You can't demand that of God. If he doesn't want to show himself to you, he won't. God has a total freedom in this matter. He's completely free of whether he's going to disclose himself to you or not. Now, here's the incredible thing. If you're a Christian, God wants to disclose himself to you. And how much of himself does he want to disclose? Everything. He wants, to, he wants to show you everything. He wants to tell you his reasons for everything. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? He doesn't want to hide anything from us. Isn't that incredible? Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. He, that's what eternal life is, is to know God, to know his mind, his purpose, his intentions, his, all of that. And we're going to study that forever in heaven. You're not going to learn it all here on earth. You're certainly not going to learn it tonight in this Bible study. All right, you'll learn a little portion of it. But God wants to show you everything. And that's mercy, isn't it? But you can't demand it. It's not a matter of justice. It's not a matter of if he shows it to one, he better show it to everybody. That is just not true. God doesn't have to show it to anybody. And he doesn't have to show it to 10% of everybody's. He doesn't have to do any of that. He just does it as he chooses. Does that make sense? Now, how does that help explain the Jewish problem? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How does that explain the problem that Paul's addressing here? Does God owe it to that Jewish nation to show himself to all of them? Does he owe it to them? Is it a matter of justice that all of the Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham, see the glory of God like Moses did up on the mountain? Is that owed to them? Not at all. And as a matter of fact, he's going to say in these three chapters, he's like, let's remember who we're talking about here. All right? How about this? All day long, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's who we're talking about here. He doesn't owe them anything. And so that helps explain why so many of them are not believing in Christ because God has not chosen to have mercy on them. However, as he said at the beginning of chapter 11, somebody read that, 11.1, 1, um, maybe 11.1 1 and 2.
1: Yes, and did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham for the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people
0: whom he foreknew. Okay, stop there. So what is he saying there, Tom? God did not reject us all. I'm a I'm a Jew. So what's he saying there? I, mean, I don't just single you out, but anybody, what is he saying there? God has clearly not rejected all the Jews because I'm a Jew. Paul says that. So what's his point? If God had rejected all the Jews, how many of them would be believers in Christ? Zero. But in every generation, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And they do love Jesus and they do see his glory. So that's part of the mystery of what we're getting in, in here. Israel experienced a hardening in part, not a complete hardening. Because if it were complete hardening, how many Jewish Christians would there be? Zero. So what he's saying is, look, he is showing mercy to some of them. He is showing mercy to some. And he's also showing mercy to some of the Gentiles. Are all Gentiles saved? No. He shows mercy to some, and that's what he's getting at. That's the mercy and the compassion. The mercy and the compassion that God shows is self-disclosure in the beauty of salvation. And fundamentally, I think it goes to 2 Corinthians 4.6. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's a beautiful glory, isn't it? A beautiful light. We see in Christ the glory of God. We see that Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And when a Jewish person sees that, they're saved. They're saved. They see the beauty and the glory of Christ as the radiance of the Father. And they are thereby saved. That's what faith is. They see the glory of God in Christ beautiful thing, isn't it? And that's the mercy and that's the compassion he's talking about with Moses. that makes sense? So we've got two, two case studies here. Moses, to whom God showed mercy, the mercy of self-disclosure. And then he sums it up with this very key statement. He says, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. All right? So that's what he's getting at. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So, I don't know why I do outlines and I don't even use them. What is this? Where, it's in here somewhere. All right, so just jump ahead if you would. Um, so, you know, I'm just tracking through here, but I'm at verse 16. Uh, I've got a different pagination than you, but maybe page three for you guys, I'm guessing. All right, so 916. So, that's right where I'm at in my narrative here. Uh, it, it, does not therefore depend on man's dire effort, but on God's mercy. That's NIV. KJV says, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Okay. Well, both in the NIV and KJV, all we have is it. We don't know what the it is, but the it has got to be salvation. I mean, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Salvation. Does not depend on these two things. Now, what does he say in verse 16 that salvation does not depend on? KJV is a little more accurate, though it's archaic English. What does he say? It it does not, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. Now, these are human hymns, right? These are human beings. It's not of the human being that does two things. What are the two things that it doesn't depend on that human beings do? In verse 16. So will, it's not based on human will, and it's not based on human running. All right. So running, what is running? Well, we know the metaphor of walking, like, you know, you walk with the Lord or, you know, talk about somebody's daily walk. It just has to do with your lifestyle. So running would be a lifestyle only with exertion. I think it's a picture of exertion of maximum energy. All right. So it doesn't depend on those things. Salvation does not depend on human will and it does not depend on human exertion, but on God. And again, that's where we have, it's, it's like, you you could focus too much on the mercy. It's, it's not a matter of the mercy here. It's a matter of God who shows mercy. So it's not of the man who wills or the man who runs, but of the God who has mercy. Does that make sense? That's the emphasis in the Greek. So again, what's pitted here is it's not by man, but by God. Same thing we had earlier on election. You know, In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. So the calling is not the point, although that's how he does it. It's based on him, God. God wants to be the center of all of this, and he is. Salvation is of the Lord. And so it does not depend on human will, and it does not depend on human running. Now, having said that, how do you make sense then of Hebrews 12 which says, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. Let us run with endurance, the race marked out before us. Or 1 Corinthians 9, that says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. You know, I run a race, I run so that I may obtain a crown. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he runs. Hebrews 12, the author says we should run. So apparently we do run before we run. Do we do any willing? Do we will? Yes. So this doesn't remove human will and it doesn't remove human effort. But what it does is it says something else comes first. And the thing that comes before you will and before you run is God had mercy on you. And because he had mercy on you, you're going to will and you're going to run. Does that make sense? So it's not—he's not denying human will here, and he's not de- denying human effort, but he's—he's he's saying, like we—we we, we have in another place, we love because he first loved us. So I would take that same mentality here, saying we will because he first had mercy on us. We run because he first had mercy on us. That's how I'd put verse sixteen together. All right? Questions or comments about verse sixteen?
1: Yeah. Uh, those two scriptures shared from Hebrews and.
0: First Corinthians nine. 1 Corinthians nine. Yes. Aren't, aren't those more referring to sanctification and not self adjustment? Absolutely. Absolutely. is where we participate. Yeah. Yeah. Because sanctification is a matter of human exertion and will. It's a co- collaborative effort. We work and God works. We work out our salvation, for it is God who works in us. God works. We work. That's sanctification. You all have a good day on sanctification today. How'd, how'd it go that you work and god works you work and god works it was a collaborative effort between you and god today how would you give yourself a good grade how'd you do today stephanie go ahead oh i had a question okay <laughs> all right go ahead
1: um do you think that, that we should pray like moses we should what god to show us his glory
0: absolutely yeah. doesn't do you have any sense from scripture that god wants to show you his glory I think there are many verses that say that in salvation, God wants to show you his glory. So given that he's told you that, and also then I can find verses that would also, you know, exhort us to want it and desire it, we should ask him. So I think we should do that. We should say what Moses said. Say, Lord, I, today, I want to see your glory in ways I haven't seen before. I want to see it in other people. I want to see it in your creation. I want to see it in your word. I just want to see your glory. I think that's a beautiful thing to ask. What do you all think? That's a great prayer. Thank you. Very good. Any other questions or comments? Now, how does it, remember I told you the two goals or effects of this doctrine was that it humbles you and it gives you security. How does verse 16 do both? It does not therefore depend on human desire or on human effort, but on God who has mercy. How does that humble you? And then how does it give you security?
1: Since it, since it doesn't depend on our
0: uh, will or exertion, there's no room for boasting in us. There's no boasting. We can't boast in our willing or our running. All right. So it, it's it's very humbling. It's, verse sixteen is a humbling verse. How is it a, a security verse or an assurance verse? How does it give you assurance? God's doing it. We can't screw it up. But we try, though. Boy, day after day we try. We don't intend to screw our salvation up, but <laughs> we we do. And yet for all of that, God has mercy on us and he's determined. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. God is determined to show us mercy. He's more determined than we are to receive it. It's amazing how determined God is to show us mercy. So anyway, 916 gives you assurance and it gives you also humility. All right, but let's go down to verse 17 and 18 and see if we can understand them. All right. So the next question is the justice of God and unconditional hardening of the reprobate. So it is not a matter of injustice. If God doesn't show you mercy, we've covered that God doesn't owe that to anybody. He doesn't owe self-disclosure to anybody. So no, he's addressing what then shall we say is God unjust. And he brings out Moses and he brings out Pharaoh as examples of why no, 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 God's not unjust. So on the positive side, it's not a matter of injustice to not, show himself. All right, now let's talk about Pharaoh. All right, so we're going to bring this up. The justice of God and unconditional hardening of the reprobate illustrated by Pharaoh. Now, in the world, as I said, God isn't just showing mercy to people. That's not all he's doing in the world. He's also doing something else. And this verse, 17 and 18, says that God's doing what to people in the world? He's hardening them. So we need to understand what that means. What is that? All right, God is hardening people. He hardened He hardened the Esau's, he hardened Pharaoh, all right? So that means uh, everyone in the world gets one or the other. And I mean for your whole lifetime. I believe that God starts working on the elect in terms of their consciousness, in terms of their education, in terms of the forces that will lead them to salvation from the moment of infancy, from from the very beginning. God is, is showing mercy whole life. Do you believe that God shows mercy to the unconverted elect? I can tell you by way of testimony, I almost drowned in Lake Winnipesaukee as an unconverted elect person. I'm very glad I didn't. I hadn't come to faith in Christ yet. I would have gone to hell. So was God saving me by another motorboat coming out and pulling me like dead weight out of that water? Part of God's salvific mercy to me? You better believe it was. So God shows mercy long before you ever come to Christ. He was watching you, and it's a beautiful story, isn't it? It's not just the moment of conversion or the evangelist comes and shares. Yeah, that's part of God showing you mercy. But years before that, he was showing you mercy, too. No matter how you grew up, the same is true on the other side of the ledger. It's harder to understand. It's harder perhaps to accept, but God's hardening, too. He's hardening people all over the world from infancy. And that's the thing we're trying to understand here, all right? Everyone in the world gets one or the other, verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills to harden. All right, so Paul makes that assertion. In order to prove it, uh, he brings the, and to answer the deeper question, why, he brings out this quote from Exodus, Exodus chapter 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, so let's try to understand this. Why did Paul choose this quote, all right? What's interesting is there are 16 quotes in Exodus, 16 verses, that mention hardening directly. 16. He didn't choose any of those, all right? There are 16 different times that we have a statement about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but instead he chooses this one. Why does he do that? Now, beforehand, before Moses even goes back to Egypt at the burning bush, or actually, actually after the burning bush, because he circles back to him, and he says in Exodus 4.21, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden his heart. He says it again in 7, 2, and 3. So he states ahead of time, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Then he unfolds the plagues with Pharaoh's hardened heart being essential to the process. Already by the time this statement happens, six plagues have occurred. Water is turned into blood. We had the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the plague on the cattle, the boils on man and beast. So those are the six plagues. We have four more to go. Four more are hail, locusts, three days of thick darkness, and then the plague on the firstborn, the Passover plague. All right, so that's where we're at. Six are done. We have four more to go. All right, in between plagues six and seven, God makes a statement to Pharaoh, Exodus 9. He said, uh, go tell, uh, he said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh this is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says. So this whole thing is something God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. But I cut that out, um, but that's what's going on. This is what the Lord, the God of, he- of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, so in my opinion, Paul chooses that quote and not any of the 16 unhardening because it explains why God hardens. It gives a reason why. Why the hardening? Is that something that would pop in people's mind? Why would God do that? Why would he harden somebody? And so what does verse 17 tells you about God's purpose, about the reprobate? Why do they exist? Why do they live at all? We're going to get more into this in 19 through 23. uh, Romans 9, 19 through 23. But just looking at verse 17, what's his reason? So it's a display of God. God is using Pharaoh. He's using Pharaoh to put himself on display. Would you say that that's true of all the reprobate? If you ask, why do they exist at all? It is to put God on display. It's a general purpose that puts God on display. I think that is the biblical answer. It's what he's going to give in the question, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy? That's all display language. Display, display, display. They exist to display. The clearest example of a reprobate person in the entire Bible is Judas Iscariot. Would you say he meets the condition that God raised him up to put himself, God, on display? Did he serve that purpose? He definitely did. Very well. And that is the answer of why then did Judas even exist? All right, and that's what we're getting at. But Judas, like Pharaoh, like Esau, there are all examples of that kind of approach to life, and you're asking why do they even exist? And so he says, look, I raised you up for this very purpose. Now, John Piper asked in his book, The Pleasures of God, why didn't God make short work of Pharaoh? What does that mean, by the way? Short work of Pharaoh. One does he need a plague does god need a plague no he's like let my people go i don't know the lord and i'm not gonna let people go bang he's dead <laughs> it's like could god have done that oh without any problem it's not hard for god to kill somebody why because in him we live and move and have our being god as we said you know in my in my um sermon on new year's eve uh quoting daniel 5 Um, God holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's true of every human being and every demon and every angel. God sustains their very existence. If God doesn't want to sustain your existence anymore, you will stop existing. That's not hard for God to do. Does that make sense? So that's what short work means. So why does he want this elaborate 10 plague thing of going back, going back again, going back again, and by now, blah, blah, blah. Why 10 plagues? show his power he wants to put himself on display he wants the whole thing done what do we learn what do you learn from god or about god in the 10 plagues what does it show you about his uh scope his repertoire i mean what what do you what do you learn there what can he do Whatever do. (laughs) whatever he wants to do He can make the sunlight like it's dark. He can bring hail out of a clear blue sky. He can, he can do anything he wants to do anytime. Yeah.
1: It seems like he especially wanted to do the last one. Because Why do you say it that? It about Christ.
0: Okay. The plague on the, uh, on the firstborn. God wanted the Passover. He wanted it done. All right. And by the way, the sermon I wrote this week that I'll preach God willing in five weeks was... The Passover, it's now two days before the Passover, and it's time for preparations being made. Jesus died at the Passover. Was that an accident? You know it's not. You're right. He wanted that centuries-old story to then be reenacted again and again by the Jews in their religion and Jesus to fulfill it. And I I find it fascinating that Jesus' enemies absolutely did not want to kill him during the Passover. They absolutely did not want that. That's the last thing they wanted. Why? Because there's like a quarter of a million or half a million Jews in Jerusalem. They did not want a big show or display. They wanted to quietly take care of Jesus a few weeks later. Right? And when do they kill him? Exactly at the height of the Passover. Because God, that's his plan. But here I'm stealing my own thunder from a sermon in five weeks. But anyway, you but there it is. God wanted the tenth plague and he wanted the Passover. And it's, it, he wanted to put his, his attributes on display. Before the eighth plague, locusts, all right? Listen to this, Exodus 10:7. Pharaoh's official said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? This is the eighth plague. I mean, by then you've got gnats and frogs and all. It's horrible. Absolutely horrible. So I would think a simple enlightened self-interest would kick in at some point, right? Long before you get to the 10th plague. Somewhere in there, you're going to come to your senses and say, look, this is a losing battle. Let's give in. But it doesn't happen. Why not? Well, we know from the account it's because God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could do all 10 plagues. Why? Because God wanted to display the greatness of his power and make a name for himself by his incredible achievement of bringing Israel out by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. As he says again and again, he wants to make a great name for himself. Why does he want to do that? Why does God want to make a name for himself? Well, because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. And you're not going to call on a name that's not great. And you're not going to call on a name you've never heard of. And so he's going to get to that in chapter 10. So essential to salvation is God doing some awesome things, right? Some great, great awesome things that then make a name that you'll call on. Jesus did that with his miracles, right? He has a whole track record of awesomeness, four gospels of awesomeness. So you look at that and say, truly this man is the son of God. See what I'm saying? He makes a great name for himself. And so that's what he wants to do. All right, now, as we come to the hardening... The most common escape is, ah, yes, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, then God judicially hardened it. John Wesley does that. You can read it. Uh, I will harden his heart. This is in Exodus 4.21, Wesley's comment, after he has frequently hardened it himself, willfully shutting his eyes against the light, I, God, will at last permit Satan to harden it effectually. So Wesley brings in Satan at that point, um, which is interesting. I think Satan does have a role. And then in Exodus 9, 12, this is Wesley's comment. Now the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart before he had hardened his own heart and resisted the grace of God. And now God justly gives him up to his own heart, lusts, to strong delusions, permitting Satan to blind and harden him. Willful hardness is commonly punished with judicial hardness. Let us dread this as the sorest judgment a man can be under on this side of hell. That's a very strong statement. All right, now in one sense, it's true. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart did not take him in a direction he didn't want to go, right? He took him exactly where he wanted to go. It's not like he's going one direction and then suddenly he's going a different direction. However, if what Wesley and others mean is that God was waiting to see what man would do, who knows, we'll have to see, and that Pharaoh's some free will person and we'll just have to let him make his own choice, that's not the flavor at all of Exodus or of Romans 9. Not in the least. All right? And that it would be unjust for him to give the man, uh, not to give the man ultimate self determination in this matter of hardening. The text does not say that. All right, so we got a series of problems with this. Problem number one evidence in Exodus doesn't support this, actually. Did Pharaoh harden his heart first and then God harden it later? There is no evidence of that in, in Exodus. It's just not true. You have to look at the evidence. Just look up the times that hardening is is described. First of all, God declares what he's going to do before any of it happens. I will harden his heart so that I may perform all of my plagues. He wants to get the whole 10 plagues done, and the only way that's going to happen is if he hardens Pharaoh's heart. So before he even goes, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's a key statement. Why is it a key statement? Well, there's the statement in Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. In other words, do the whole thing. Don't shortchange any of it. I want all of them done. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So the initial accounts say nothing about who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Wesley and the others say that uh, uh, Pharaoh hardened it first. Then God hardened it. Frankly, the first two times that Pharaoh's heart was demonstrably hard, it is unclear who hardened it. It doesn't say. After Aaron's staff became a snake, remember that was the first time, remember how he threw it on the ground and it became a snake? It said, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Okay, well, who hardened it? Don't know. I don't think it matters, but it really matters to Wesley. I can tell you that right now. But it doesn't matter to me because I do believe that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I do believe God hardened it. I believe Satan hardened it. I believe the whole thing. But Wesley doesn't want to say that God hardened it before Pharaoh ever flew his flag, all right? So first, he's going to give Pharaoh a chance. That's the way that Wesley tends to think, all right? So all it says is Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to him. So the Hebrew supports no conclusion either way. But you have this repeated troublesome phrase for the Wesleyan position, as the Lord had said. Now, what is that talking about? All right, as the Lord had said means, as I told you. Did he tell us, did did God tell Moses, Pharaoh will harden his own heart? Did he say that? No. What did God say to Moses? I will harden his heart. So every time it says, as the Lord had said, is referring to, I will harden his heart, not Pharaoh will harden his own heart. See what I'm saying? And we have that phrase again and again and again, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had said. And again, friends, it's not as the Lord had predicted. It's as the Lord had said. That's what he's saying again and again. Again, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. In all, this amazing phrase, as the Lord had said, is inserted six times in conjunction with all three types of the account. Statement that the Lord had hardened his heart. Statements that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And inconclusive statements that don't say either way. In all of those three categories, it's as the Lord had said, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had said. So the idea you get from Exodus is God's word is standing over this whole process. He's sovereign over the whole process. That's the, that's the, what you get with the hardening. Now, do you think that Pharaoh had a hard heart before Moses ever showed up? Any sense of that? What would the nature of Pharaoh's hard heart be like? Pharaoh, a sweet guy, nice guy. He's like, you know, no, he's a tyrant. That's who he is. All right? So the hardening began long before Moses ever showed up. So we need to understand that. Now, problem number two, it doesn't escape the problem. God still does something to the human heart. A pure free will position would never want God to do any hardening at all. You're going to keep letting people make their own choice. Pure Pelagianism and says you've got to make your own choice. God's not going to get involved. But even Wesley acknowledges at some point God steps in and he takes the ball out of your hands. So that still you have a problem at that point where God has sovereignly stepped in and said, you, you, you got people still alive. Wesley would agree with this. Who God has judicially hardened and for them, they have no possibility of repenting. See what I'm saying? And so that problem still stands. Why would God do that? all right the real mystery here is it's contrary to the direct command that god is giving to pharaoh what is god telling pharaoh to do he says it again and again we don't need to wonder what is he commanding him to do let my people go and god hardens his heart so he won't let the people go how is that relevant to the gospel it's incredibly relevant to the gospel believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved And God hardens the heart so they don't believe in the Lord Jesus and are not saved. Do you see the problem? That's exactly what we're talking about here because that is the big picture question that Paul's answering. Why is it the Jews aren't believing in Jesus and being saved? And what answer is he giving here in Romans 9? Because God's hardening their heart. That's why. That is the answer that's being given in this verse. However much we might struggle with it, that's the answer he's giving. So the command to Pharaoh is let my people go. The command to people all over the world including jews is believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved repent and believe it's but it's the same dynamic you see it's a command coming from god but then there's a hardening and that's mysterious do you see that it's troubling and mysterious to try to understand that because the implication is and it's so beautiful how paul knows what you're gonna think all right fine if that's how it is then you know what i think it's unfair for god to send anyone to hell by the way, can someone read verse 19? The very next verse. I know it's not on your sheet, but it is in the Bible. So uh, just read verse 19.
1: One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will?
0: What does that sound like? What does blame us mean? What does blame us look like on judgment day? Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. That's what, Why does God send anyone to hell because God's sovereign over salvation? Isn't that the very question that Paul's raising in verse 19. So isn't it beautiful that it seems like we're getting Paul right here? We're actually hearing him right. Because you're going to say this whole thing sounds unfair. It doesn't make any sense. If God is hardening and people can't repent, then why does God send anyone to hell? And isn't it so satisfying the answer he gives in verse 20? Someone read the satisfying answer he gives in verse 20 answer back to god there we go there's the satisfying answer what is god saying to you you have no right to question me you have no right to argue with me and you know here's the thing fundamentally we think we do we think we're god's equals and that god owes us an explanation for what he's done and he doesn't we're human we're creature he's god how much of an explanation did he owe to Job for killing his 10 children? Well, let me ask you another question. How much did he give him? How much of an explanation did, did God give Job for the death of his 10 children? Zero.
1: <laughs>
0: he gave him zero explanation. He doesn't owe us anything. And yet what's interesting to me, is there a verse 21 and a verse 22 and a verse 23 in Romans 9? There is. So first he rebukes us, and then he goes ahead and answers it. So he rebukes an attitude of arrogant questioning, but then he gives more information. It's amazing, isn't it? And you may wonder about that more information. Well, it's not going to happen tonight, all right? We're going to talk more about it, God willing, next, next week. All right, Andy, when would you close us, brother? Thanks.
1: Father, we thank you for your mercy on us. We thank you for your grace, and we pray.
0: Amen.